Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Criminologist Grant Dewey told Public Radio's Here and Now program in 2013 that mass murder rates and mass public shootings have been on the decline. He said that two-tenths of one percent of all homicides in the U.S. are mass murders. Of those, ten percent are mass public killings, such as those in Newtown and Aurora. And within a given year, there are about 30 mass murders that occur in this country. He says the more common mass murder occurs when a male head of household kills his partner and his children than himself. In the wake now of San Bernardino and other recent mass shootings, we're going to check in with Grant Dewey and ask him to provide context, review some of the history on the program today. And we'll talk about mental illness, guns, media, and much more. Grant Dewey is Director of Research for the Minnesota Department of Corrections. He's author of the book from 2007, Mass Murder in the United States, A History. His research has been published in Crime and Delinquency, Justice Quarterly, Homicide Studies, Western Criminology Review, and other journals. And he holds a Ph.D. in Criminology and Criminal Justice from Florida State University. Dr. Dewey, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Tom, for having me on the program. You're, uh, you've become kind of a go-to uh, person on this, uh, so double appreciation for you taking some, some time on this. How did you get into a study of, of mass murder? Um, when I was an undergraduate uh, in college in the early 1990s, uh, fall of 1991 to be specific, there was a string of high-profile mass public shootings that had taken place, most notably the mass public shooting committed by George Hennard at a Luby's cafeteria in Killeen, Texas, where he killed more than 20 victims. And at the time, that was the largest gun-related mass killing that had taken place in the United States. And and it, it really piqued my curiosity and my interest in, in in terms of why someone would go into their place of work or another public location and tried to kill as many people as they could. And so initially I was interested in, in why someone would, would do that. And so when I entered graduate school at Florida State University, I ended up doing my master's thesis and doctoral dissertation on the topic. And, and what I soon discovered is that mass public shootings, even though they are the most newsworthy mass murders, they're also the least common. And the more common cases include uh, familicides, which you referenced at the, at the beginning of the program. And, and so that, that really got me interested in, in how the news media covers uh, mass murders and how mass murder has been uh, constructed as a social problem, which led me to, to, investigate, to investigate claims that, that some have made about mass murder, that it's this historically new crime that emerged in the mid-1960s. And so I started looking at the history of mass murder, and eventually my work resulted in the book that came out in 2007. And I believe what you found is that this is not a new phenomenon. It's, uh, the, these types of uh, mass uh, shootings have been occurring for a long time. That's right. Far from it. In fact, what, what we see is that, that the mass murder rate was just as high in the 1920s and 1930s as it was from the mid-1960s through the mid-1990s. And so, um, to be sure, we, we did see a mass murder wave from the 60s through the 90s, but it was by no means unprecedented uh, because there was the one that occurred uh, back in the 20s and 30s. Um, 
the two waves, however, were qualitatively different. The one in the 20s and 30s was mostly comprised of familicides and felony-related massacres. And felony-related massacres are, are cases that, that usually involve uh, a group of young males who kill all the eyewitnesses who are present to avert their detection. And usually it takes place within the context of a robbery. And in, historically, those cases have not been nearly as newsworthy as mass public shootings. But in the mid-1960s, we start to see an increasing number of mass public shootings. And, and, and because of that, uh, one of the arguments that I make is that is that's one of the reasons why mass murder was identified as this new social problem or crime problem is because the, the mass murder wave that began in the 60s contained these cases that were more newsworthy. And uh, um, I want to treat this right now before we get it further into it. Um, you know, any death, uh, as I was thinking about this, and I have been thinking about this, you know, since San Bernardino and all the other, the other mass killings, um, on one side of this is uh, any death is tragic. You know, the, your, your family member gets murdered, a single murder, that's, that's tragic. And mass shooting is, is tragic, but perceptions of this is important, right? Context, and that's what we're trying to do uh, t- today. I wonder, personally, is it, of course, you have to be somewhat dispassionate as a researcher, what... And you went back and researched what over in excess of nine hundred mass killings over the in the twentieth century. <laughs> what kind of effect does that have on you, as uh, personally? Well, it's. I mean, it's, it, it's been some time since since I collected data for those cases and and poured through each case, and it, and it is it's it's very challenging to uh, to be continually exposed to. Uh, to, to seeing cases where a father uh, kills his spouse and kills his children and then commits suicide afterwards. And th- those types of cases make up nearly half of all mass killings. And, and you're right. Every, every time a person loses their life, especially when, it's, uh, when, when violence is the reason, it, it's tragic. And, and so... I think that was one of the reasons why I was initially drawn to this topic is that it just it, it's it seemed so beyond the pale and it did not make a whole lot of sense but one of the things that that I have discovered over time is that that for the vast majority of those who commit mass murder or whether it's a mass public shooting what they're doing actually makes sense at least to them mm-hmm yeah, so that's a that's a big factor here, isn't it? Trying to understand why people do this because that's going to help us lead maybe to prevention. It's it's possible, um, but I think it also can temper whatever expectations we might have about coming up with any kind of policy solutions to curbing the incidence or severity of mass killings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's the other side of it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so what what have you discovered? What and has that changed over time? The reasons that people do this it it seems unfathomable to the to the average person. It the, we we haven't really seen um, significant changes, at least in the patterns of mass killings. That that there were a lot of familicides that that took place in the early part of the the twentieth century in the United States, and and we still see a lot of cases today. Um, what's 
perhaps somewhat surprising is that felony-related massacres, or more specifically drug-related massacres, that if we're looking at a, a new type of mass killing that's emerged, then, then that's probably it, uh, because we really didn't see any drug-related mass killings until about the 1970s. Um, and those cases still take place today. Uh, but prior to the 1970s, we really didn't see those. Whereas with mass public shootings, even though they were less frequent uh, prior to the mid 1960s, prior to the mid 1960s, there were still cases that took place prior to that in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I'm reading from your uh, there's a paper uh, that you've written, uh, the patterns and prevalence of mass murder in the 20th century America, um, and you say that uh, familicide. It was even more prevalent before the 1970s. And mass killers were older, more suicidal, and less likely to use guns in the first two-thirds of the 20th century. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that that, that familicides were more prevalent. Um, because what, what we see with familicides are, are generally two different types. There are parental familicides and there are progeny familicides. With the parental familicide... Which, which makes up about three-quarters of all familicides. These are cases where it's the head of the household, usually the male, who, who kills his spouse or partner, children, relatives, or a combination of these. Whereas when, when females commit uh, familicide, they're more likely to, to exclusively target uh, the children and, and not kill her spouse or partner. And with, with these cases... The offender is often depressed and suicidal. In parental familicides, we see that about two-thirds uh, commit suicide after the attack. And, and usually there are two main scenarios that we see here with parental familicides. One is, is, is where the offender kills his, his spouse or partner for the sake of revenge. And, and usually it's, it's because of a divorce or impending divorce. And the idea here is, is the offender thinks, if I can't have you, then no one will. It's kind of this obsessive, controlling type of love, if, if you can call it that. Um, and, and the motive for killing the children is, is actually a little more altruistic, as bizarre as that may sound, where they're killing the, ch- they're, they're killing the children because the offender knows he's going to commit suicide afterwards, and he doesn't want his children to grow up as orphans. He doesn't want them to have to live in this world that he perceives as cruel, and some even harbor fantasies about a, a reuniting in the afterlife. Um, and then the other scenario that we see is one that's, that's strictly this distorted sense of altruism. And this is most often associated with financial difficulties where the offender can't make, make ends meet. And he feels that the, that the fate of his family is inextricably linked to that of his own. And so he, he kills the whole family and then commits suicide afterwards. And then the other is with progeny familicide. And this is where the mass murderer kills his parents and siblings. And this is less common than parental familicide, and here the offenders are younger, much less likely to commit suicide. And the motive here often seems to be very trivial. Um, one of the cases that, uh, that I've highlighted before is, is one that occurred here in Minnesota in the early 1940s, where a 16-year-old boy killed his parents, his sister, and his brother. And, and the motive 
for the, the mass killing is because he was tired of being bossed around on the farm they lived on. And so, the, you know, those are some distinctions that, that we see among familicides. I wonder, let me read this from President Obama, his recent comments. They echo, I was interested to learn as I went back, found that here and now story with interview with you, Dr. Dewey, from 2013, and President Obama's comments on, on some recent mass shootings then, very similar. This is what he said recently. We're the only advanced country on earth that sees this kind of mass violence erupt with this kind of frequency. It doesn't happen in other advanced countries. It's not even close. Uh, I, I don't know if you've studied other countries, but but that is, I think, perception among some here in the United States, uh, and often tied with the gun debate. But leaving that aside, that we're just a very violent country comparatively. Well, I think I think mass killings, and more specifically, mass public shootings, are probably the most visible manifestation of of our legacy of violence. That, that we've had in this country since the inception of the uh, republic. And, and, and it, it's, it's true that, that the U.S. has long been a very violent country. So um, it's, not, it's not difficult to, to see that, that mass murder um, or mass public shootings would be much more common within the United States. But one point that's worth making is that scholarship on mass murder outside the U.S. is virtually non-existent. So the claim about mass murder or mass shootings being much more common in the United States is unfortunately a non-falsifiable claim, that there's no, there's no data or evidence that currently exists to either support or refute that claim. So while it may be very plausible, it, we we just don't know whether it's true, hmm. and so that gives it gets us to perception, which is very important. I, t- I want to take a break. When I come back, I want to talk about perception and context, and uh, talk about media. You've uh, you've written about uh, the media's role in this. We'll talk about guns as well, and uh, mental illness. That's an important component uh, here. We're talking with uh, Grant Dewey, uh, who's a criminologist, and he's uh, written. Uh, an important book on this is from 2007, Mass Murder in the United States, A History. He holds a Ph.D. in criminology and criminal justice from Florida State University. He's director of research for the Minnesota Department of Corrections. And we are continuing today our series of programs on mass shootings in America. By the way, a programming note, next week we will conclude this series talking uh, focusing on guns. And uh, this is often the way people frame this. We're going to talk about that. Very interesting conversations next week. Hope you'll... Uh, Stay tuned, of course, to this conversation. We hope that you'll join this conversation. Love to hear your perspective on uh, on all of these mass shootings and uh, how we should put these in uh, context. The number is 1-800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxis at gmail.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Green Valley Spa and Resort an all-sweet spa and fitness resort in St. George offering an on-site restaurant, six pools, and 14 tennis courts. Details at greenvalleyspa.com. Did you know that approximately 75% of students who receive mental health services get these services in school settings? School psychologists and school counselors are key mental health providers who help teachers and families maximize students' active engagement in learning and strengthen their personal, academic, and social development. 
Did You Know That? is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is criminologist Grant Dewey. He's author of the book Mass Murder in the United States, A History, and he's director of research for the Minnesota Department of Corrections. Um, and he says that uh, mass murder rates and mass public shootings have been on the decline uh, as of at least 2013. When you talk to uh, public radios here and now program, two-tenths uh, of one percent of all homicides in the U.S. are mass murders. Of those, ten percent are mass uh, public uh, killings. You can join us here in the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or our email is upraxcess at gmail.com. I'd love to get your take on this. Uh, Dr. Dewey, um, I've been trying to, it's only been just a little while here since uh, I've been reading up on this and, and your findings, so I'm not sure how to take what that does for me to know that uh, mass public shootings, mass murder rates have been on the decline. Uh, and every time we have one of these, it's, I mean, it's upsetting, you know, San Bernardino and off we go here in this particular uh, spot on the media dial, we, we have a series of programs on this. Um, I don't know. How, how do you think we – what does that say, that, that this has been on the decline despite the perception? Well, well first of all, I'd like to, to go back to that, uh, to that here and now piece, which was done back in 2013. And, and at the time, I was looking at data uh, up through the end of the, the 2000s. Um, since that time, I've, I have updated my data set to include uh, cases up through 2015. And so when we're looking at trends in mass public shootings, when, when we're looking at the long-term historical view, we see that, that prior to the mid-1960s, there weren't that many mass public shootings. But, but the case that was really the bellwether for the increase in mass public shootings was the, the mass shooting carried out by Charles Whitman at the University of Texas in 1966. And, and there he, he killed 14, wounded 30 more. He killed his, his, he, he killed his wife and mother the night before. Um, and, and this case really kind of uh, signaled this upward trend in mass public shootings because in the 50 years before Whitman, there were 24 mass public shootings. But since Whitman, there have been 140. And so we see an increase in mass public shootings in the 70s. We see even more cases in the 80s. And we see the, the greatest number of cases in the 90s. And then we, we, did, we start to see a drop in mass public shootings in the mid-1990s. And that lasted up through the mid-2000s. So when we look at the 2000s, we do see a fewer number of cases, but, but one thing that's worth noting is that over the last 10 years, we have seen a modest uptick in the mass public shooting rate. And so um, the distinction that, uh, that I make is that, that what's different over the last 10 years versus the, the period of time uh, preceding the, the drop that started in the mid-90s is that that over the last 10 years, we've had a very steady 
flow of of cases that that have occurred that that mass public shootings have have taken place with greater regularity whereas in the period from the early 1980s up through the the early 1990s we saw higher peaks in lower valleys in terms of the mass public shooting rate each year. Whereas within the last 10 years, it's been very consistent where we've seen anywhere from three to five cases each year, 2012 being the exception. Hmm. I want to talk a bit about media and how that uh, shapes our perception and then what that perception means. Uh, you, you write in a, a paper the well-known cases are atypical, which is precisely why they're newsworthy. And you go on to say that these cases shape our perceptions. Correct. When when we look at, I mean, one thing that's that's worth emphasizing about mass murder, and and I define mass murder as, as incidents in which four more victims are killed within a 24-hour period. And nearly every mass murder is newsworthy insofar as it is it receives at least some local coverage. But not all mass murders are nationally newsworthy. If there's a, a familicide, for example, which tend to be less newsworthy, if there's a familicide that takes place here in Minnesota that involves four, four victims who were killed, you may, not, you may not hear about that in Utah. It may receive coverage. It will likely receive coverage here in Minnesota, but you're not going to hear about it. Whereas if there's a mass public shooting that involves six or seven or eight victims who are killed, everyone is much more likely to hear about that. And so when when we look at the, at mass killings, it's the mass public shooting that that has really dominated our perception of what of what the the typical mass murder is and and a large part of that has to do with with the news coverage that gets allocated towards these cases that mass public shootings are are a lot more newsworthy for for a lot of good reasons um not only are they are they more atypical but they they tend to involve a greater number of killed and wounded victims and as crass as it may sound the when when the body count is higher, it usually leads to to greater news coverage. And these are incidents that also take place in public locations. The selection of victims is often indiscriminate. And so the idea here is is very much one of random violence in which in which people identify with with the victims of these cases. they They think that could have been me or that could have been my spouse or that could have been my child who who was the victim there but then because these incidents take place in public there are often uh, eyewitnesses to what took place and they can deliver a a riveting uh first-hand account of of what happened whereas with the familicide uh it's seldom uh the case where there are any eyewitnesses to to later relay what what happened and so i mean there are some good reasons why mass public shootings are much more newsworthy than other types of mass killings and and how that's affected our perception of what mass killings are and of course we're talking about you know, a collective perception right which could lead to how we frame the issue and and what we do uh you know if if your family experiences a, a mass shooting. That's, of course, a tragedy to your to your family. A mass shooting, perhaps, I don't know, tugs us as a society more. Is that 
Is that what we're saying here? Well, I I think that's a fair way to put it. I think that that rather than I, and I think another way to put it is is that that when we look at all mass killings and we see that mass public shootings account for about 12% of the cases, whereas familicides make up close to half of all mass killings, if we just looked at that, then then we would think that that mass murder is, is very much a domestic violence problem. But it's not framed that way. Instead, it's framed as, as a gun problem, as a workplace violence problem, as a, as a school shooting problem. And, and because of that, and, and more recently as, as a mental health problem, and, and those are all things that are associated with mass public shootings because mass public shootings are much more newsworthy and they dominate uh, uh, the coverage that, that's given to the topic of mass murder in general. Mm. So I was thinking about this. I, I, in my mind, I came up with an analogy. It may be um, you know, totally off base, but uh, in my mind it was is useful. I'll see what you think. Uh, it, in terms of how we frame these issues, so what I was thinking about was transportation, and it, it's it's something we all know um, that, that you're. I, I think it's true. You're more likely, I think, quite a bit more likely to to get in a, a car and and you know die in an automobile accident than you are in, a, in an airplane. But the airplane crashes, of course, gets the uh, that gets the news because a lot of people die at once. And if you were to follow that and, and, and only see that perception, then then you might uh, uh, make different policy decisions. You might make different personal decisions. Is, is that a good analogy? Yeah, I, I think that I think that analogy works. Um, I, I think there's also the uh, the issue of control with with that analogy that that folks tend to think that they have more control when they're driving a car versus uh, flying an airplane. Um, but but I think when when it comes to 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 mass murder, I think I think part of the perception is that that although it's very tragic what happened to someone's family it's isolated only to that family or with a felony related massacres those are much more likely to involve uh, minority offenders and victims and and once again i as as horrible as it sounds the truth is that that the victim and offender's race and ethnicity matters, or at least historically it has when it comes to, to news coverage. And, and plus there's also the idea that, that with a felony-related massacre, and, and this is often the case too, is that the victims are also involved in, in criminal activity. And so the victims are not perceived as innocent as say you might see in a familicide or more specifically a mass public shooting where where victims are are in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, I just want to check through some uh, perceptions one perception I think that, that you have found that is false is that uh, in recent times more likely Diana mass murder at, at a workplace setting is is that has that been increasing or is that just the kind of the same as it's always been the the rate at which um, workplace mass shootings have taken place has has not really changed that much since the early 20th century. That there were uh, cases that uh, that occurred in the, the 1940s and 50s and 60s and and so on and 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 so 
we 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 did see um, a slight uptick in in mass public shootings occurring at the workplace in the 80s and 90s. Um, but again, I mean, it wasn't a, a huge increase that uh, that we did see. What about uh, uh, schools? It, it seems, you know, and these maybe this is because it just especially tugs at the heartstrings. Has there been a uptick there? Is about the same as always. That is one area where where we actually have seen an increase. That prior to the late 1990s, uh, there there had been mass killings that had taken place uh, uh, taken place at schools. Um, I mentioned the 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 mass shooting carried out by Charles Whitman in 1966 that that took place at the University of Texas, and so there there were some that. Uh, that had occurred, but they had never been committed by a a student or or a juvenile uh, student who was attending the school. And so, in the late 1990s, we we do start to see the emergence of these cases where where we have juveniles uh, committing uh, mass mass murders at at their schools. And so that actually is something that that is relatively new. Mm. I wonder if uh, if it would be correct to, at least in part, lump this in with a phenomenon that I think that's been studied in which, because of media coverage, people are feeling less safe uh, at the same time that, uh, you know, crime is, is decreasing. Right. And, I mean, I think part of, I think part of the perception that, that mass public shootings are growing more frequent, I think goes back to, to what I mentioned uh, earlier, and, and that is that we, ha- we have seen an uptick, to be sure, and, and the average rate that we've seen in mass public shootings since 2005 is similar to the average rate that we observed in the 80s and early 90s. What's different, however, is the regularity with which cases have occurred over the last 10 years. There's been no let-up. And, and aside from 2012, annual rates have been relatively consistent. Um, and, and I would argue it's that consistency with which cases have occurred, the, the lack of a let-up that, that has fostered this impression um, that, that mass public shootings are, are growing more frequent. And there is some evidence to suggest that, that the severity of mass public shootings in terms of the number of victims killed and wounded has grown a little bit. Uh, within the last 10 years. And so that, that may also foster that impression. Mm-hmm. So in this case, particular case, uh, the perceptions may well be matching up with, uh, with the reality. To, to some degree, but I, I think it's, it's worth, I mean, the, the point is, is worth making, that, that, that we do see similar rates in, in the 80s and, and early 1990s. Um, that, that's not to say that, that we should accept uh, the, the, our current situation with mass public shootings as, as our new reality. Um, I'm not saying that, but I, I think it is worth remembering that, that the rate of mass public shootings was similar in the 80s and early 90s. Now, in fact, it, there is so much concern over crime and violence and specifically mass public shootings that it eventually led to the passage of the federal assault weapons ban in 1994, which ultimately sunset in 2004. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so this this does, at least how you frame it, it does have a, a big effect. And I want to talk about guns. Uh, you, uh, you have a paper uh, in the fairly recent past here, uh, along with some uh, co-authors, where you look at, and this one's looking at concealed uh, weapon uh, permits. Let me just read a little bit from the abstract here. Uh, such laws could reduce the number of mass public shootings as prospective shooters consider the possibility of encountering armed civilians. However, these laws might increase the number of shootings by making it easier for prospective shooters to acquire guns. So that, uh, you know, sets up the uh, each side of, of that argument. What did you find on concealed weapon permits? What we found is that right-to-carry concealed firearms laws did not have an a significant impact on either the incidence or severity of mass public shootings. Um, now, one, one thing that's that's worth adding to that is that that the the evidence is is not strong on either side of the gun debate. That either tightening or loosening uh, gun control legislation uh, would would have a significant impact on the incidence or severity of mass public shootings because. One of the things that we do see is that the incidence of mass public shootings began to increase in the 1980s and 90s, but rates of gun ownership also remained relatively stable during that time. Um, so the the gun issue um, is mentioned in the wake of, of nearly every uh, high-profile mass public shooting. Um, the the unfortunate reality, however, is that that the the evidence that that we currently have um, isn't uh, isn't especially promising in terms of uh, enacting any kind of gun legislation, whether it's tightening tightening it or loosening it, loosening it, that it would have much of an impact. Hmm. Uh, and again, uh, program note: we'll have a uh, get various perspectives on the gun side of this next week, including a very interesting perspective. Uh, from one gentleman who's uh, talking about identity and uh, gun ownership. I want to tune in next week for that. Right now we're talking with uh, Grant Dewey, who's a criminologist. Uh, he holds a Ph.D. in criminology and criminal justice from Florida State University. He's uh, written a book on this, Mass Murder in the United States, A History. And we're talking about uh, the mass shootings as part of a series of programs on this. We're uh, looking for context and uh, and some history. Uh, from Grant Dewey. And uh, your comments are welcome at 1-800-826-1495. Your questions to upraccess at gmail.com. When we come back, I want to talk about the mental illness aspect of this and more following the break. The Corps project is made possible by our members and Uinta Basin Healthcare in Roosevelt. Founded in 1944, celebrating over 70 years of service, offering hospital, clinical, and pharmacy services. It is clear that communities in northern Utah, the Uinta Basin, and Utah County need to clean up the air out there. So why do we continue to idle our cars, take short trips around the neighborhood, and avoid public transportation? Utah Public Radio wants to know what it will take to get you to take action. The conversation continues. Share your insight at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is criminologist Grant Dewey. 
Uh, he holds a Ph.D. in criminology and criminal justice from Florida State University and is director of research for the Minnesota Department of Corrections. He's author of the book Mass Murder in the United States uh, History. And uh, the, the, the mass shootings just keep coming, it seems like. And depressingly, Newtown, Aurora, lately San Bernardino. There was a, a school shooting in Saskatoon and Saskatchewan recently. Um, and uh, we have asked uh, Grant Dewey, the question is, are these increasing? And he's, he's said it at least over the, over the last few years, uh, it seems to be increasing uh, in frequency, I believe, Dr. Dewey, you said, and, and uh, severity. Right. There, there has been a modest uptick in, in the mass public shooting rate, and there's some evidence to, that suggests that the total number of victims killed and wounded has, has also increased slightly over the last decade. But if you put this in context, and your, your book went back to, what, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, uh, this, we've already, always had this, at least in America. Uh, correct. And, and, I mean, we, what we see with, or, or specifically with, with mass public shootings, is that, that even though cases were less frequent prior to the mid-1960s, there were still cases that, that took place uh, since, since the early 20th century. Let's talk a bit about mental illness now. I believe I've got this statistic right, or at least close, some 60% of, of mass murder involves mental illness. Is that, have I got that right? Well, that's in reference to mass public shootings. Okay. And, and, and I've defined mass public shootings as, as um, incidents in which an offender uses a gun to, to kill four or more victims in a public location, excluding those cases that occur in connection with other criminal activity like robberies or drug deals that went awry. And, and so that that 60 percent, it's actually 61 percent, and that's that's for 165 mass public shootings that took place in the U.S. from 1915 up through 2015. And and what we see with uh, mass public shooters with regard to 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 mental illness is that um, I think it's worth kind of backing up a step. And and, and mass public shooters they. They often believe that they've been mistreated. They blame others for their problems. And because they feel persecuted and are frequently plagued by mental illness, most commonly uh, paranoid schizophrenia and depression, uh, they are not surprisingly socially isolated, which helps explain why they're often characterized as loners. Now, what's also worth emphasizing about that 61% is that this rate is more than three times higher than the rate of any mental illness that we see among adults within the last 12 months. And that rate is about 15 times higher than what we see for serious mental illness. This is not to say that someone who suffers from paranoid schizophrenia or depression is at risk for committing this type of violence. But what it does suggest is that it, it could very well be a risk factor for some people. Uh, back to uh, media, um, just briefly. We uh, we did a program on media um, responding to, to the, these mass shootings, and we had on um, a parent of a victim of the Aurora 
a massacre. Um, he, along with his wife, has set up an organization called No Notoriety. They're pushing for media to not name the uh, the shooters, and the, the, based on a presumption that some of the the shooters at least do it because they want to become infamous. The, I, I wonder what uh, if you've seen uh, any indication of, uh, of of that as a profile of of the mass killers. The Although there are some mass public shooters who uh, who try to gain, or or it appears that that they commit the attack in order to gain some type of notoriety, even even for those offenders, and and we're talking about the Virginia Tech shooter or or Columbine, that that even for those cases, I I would argue that 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 motivation is is uh, secondary to to the initial one, in that that these are usually individuals who suffer from mental illness. They feel that they've been persecuted, and they blame others for their problems. And so, therefore, uh, the attack that they commit it's a, it's an act of revenge against those who, in their eyes, have mistreated them. It, it could be a specific group of people. Sometimes the the victims that they target are more are more of an abstraction, or it, it it's society in general that that they're angry at. And so, uh, naming the offender um, in in the wake of these incidents, I, I I'm I'm doubtful that it would have much of an impact on on whether future cases occur. Mm-hmm. I want to pull back just uh, more broadly now. Um, we've talked about how f- framing the issue um, uh, has taken many forms. You know, the, a lot of people want to go directly to guns. Uh, you could frame it through mental illness. Um, I wonder what you think. Is, is there a frame that's been used too much? And is this just an, a case in many social problems where it's a lot of interlocking factors that we have to look at? Well, I, even, though it, even though mass murder or even mass public shootings have been framed a number of different ways, I don't, I, I'm not sure whether there, there has been uh, many instances in which policy has been significantly or substantively changed as a result of that. Uh, we, we do see one instance that I mentioned earlier with the federal assault weapons ban, and we do see that in it, especially in the beginning of the 2000s, uh, schools uh, started implementing zero tolerance policies, especially with regard to to, to threats and, and and other instances like that. Um, and, and we also see some changes regarding policies in the workplace. Um, but one area where where we really haven't made uh, any kind of uh, changes with regard to policy or practice has to do with with mental health. And I know that that there has been quite a bit of discussion uh, concerning mental health reform, uh, specifically in connection with the mass shooting issue. But um, there, as with uh, uh, the gun issue, there hasn't been a whole lot of headway that's that's been made in terms of formulating uh, policy solutions. Hmm. Looking at the, the history and seeing, looking at the history of our responses to, to mass shootings, is there anything we can learn there and to bring forward, either successes or failures? Well, the in with, with the Whitman case uh, that took place in 
1966. That was the first one that we see where uh, gun control proponents uh, came out after that tragedy took place. And, 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 and really, that, that case, more than any other, kind of set the tone for how we respond to mass public shootings. And, and there was a call for, for uh, stricter gun control legislation after that took place. And, and that's continued uh, up through the present day. So for the last 50 years that, that we have seen that. But then um, it, it, it has also changed by focusing on other things uh, concerning workplace violence and school shootings and more recently with, with mental health care. Hmm. Uh, I um, want to reference some uh, uh, fairly recent, I think, research that you've been focusing on. This is from a, a uh, biography of you. Uh, recent research is focused on development of prediction instruments that assess the risk of first-time and repeat sexual offending for offenders released from prison. Um, I want to treat that briefly uh, second, but first, uh, I'm sure, I mean, that that would be a, an incredibly valuable tool, predictor but but this just seems so random that I, I don't know if that could ever happen, a predictor for for those who uh, might be very likely to commit uh, mass shootings, and then maybe we could do something. Right, and I mean, that that's the one thing that, that really is worth, worth emphasizing here is that, and, and it's what I've referred to in uh, previously is this kind of prevalence paradox that, that we have when with mass public shootings, we, we've averaged about four cases per year in the United States since the 1980s. And, and that's four too many per year. But again, it's still relatively rare. And so trying to reduce something from occurring four times per year to three or two, it, it's very challenging from a policy perspective, but it also makes it very difficult to accurately predict who will commit something that that takes place on average about four times each year just because it is so rare uh i could see maybe somewhere where you you might have at least a better chance of success in something like this prediction or seeing the signs would be uh, on the side of familicide you know if you if you're a family member or a close person to someone who maybe shows signs of uh you know killing their family horrible thing, um, but I don't know if there are always signs. Well, the, there, there are usually signs, but in, in many cases, uh, those signs are ignored. Um, but where, where it could have some potential value is, is, when, uh, is when potential offenders come to the attention of, of the authorities or, or mental health care professionals. Like when we look at mass public shooters, for example, um, of the the 61 percent who had some type of mental illness that that we see about one-third of those offenders um, sought or received mental health care prior to the attack which actually suggests two things first that we need to reduce the rate of untreated serious mental illness the treatment gap that we see among mass public shooters is high but it's also consistent with research showing that the rate of untreated serious mental illness is greater for males who have committed nearly all of the mass public shootings in this country, but it's also higher in the U.S. compared to most other Western countries. And so so there is a better job that, that we can do in assessing risk 
for those who come to the attention of the authorities. But again, this is something that, that is so rare and, and occurs so infrequently that, that making accurate predictions would be very challenging, to say the least. But at the same time, I would also argue that that there is, to, to my knowledge, no investment that's been made in terms of funding research on this topic. And, and usually the, the things that, that we prioritize as social problems, we, we often dedicate funding for more research on those topics. And to date, this topic has received very minimal priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you think it should, should put more money into this, more attention? On the research side, I, I, I think that that more research would produce better, better evidence than than what we currently have, and and I believe that that the best policies that we have are based on the best available evidence that we have. Uh, I just want to take a, a parenthetical, uh, slight detour here and and talk just uh, briefly a couple minutes about these prediction instruments. This seems hopeful. Uh, you've been having success. Have you? Prediction instruments to assess the risk of first-time or repeat sexual offending for offenders released from prison. Yeah, and that's, that's part of, of, of the work that I've done as research director here for the Minnesota Department of Corrections in, in developing these tools for, for those offenders who are in prison to assess the risk of committing either a first-time or repeat sex offense. And, and these types of offenses are very rare, so, uh, so there is that, that common thread there uh, between those prediction instruments and one that could potentially assess uh, assess risk for committing uh, extreme violence as 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 represented by a mass public shooting. Um, but once again, it, it's it's worth emphasizing that that uh, trying to predict who will ultimately commit a mass public shooting, even among those who may come to the attention of the authorities, would be a very challenging task. But that doesn't mean that that it that's one that that we should not embark on. That mm-hmm. that this is something that that we should dedicate resources to, and and that we should try to make an effort to to better understand. Mm-hmm. And uh, just for you know the average person getting out of bed and going to work or or school or or whatever, um, I don't know what you would say in in terms of you know the risk of dying in a mass murder is pretty minimal, less than. One percent of all homicides in the U.S., but that perception is still there, and I think worries us. Right. I, I mean, it's it's mass mass murders are are horrific, extreme uh, examples of violence, and we see about thirty each year within the U.S. Uh, about four of those are are mass public shootings on average, and and they they are they are very frightening in in many ways and so it's understandable why why people would would have concerns about that and 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 why the, why there's an impulse to to want to find ways or policies to to help reduce the frequency with which these incidents occur or to find ways to uh to to reduce their severity um but it's it's something once again that that is that is very rare and infrequent and and that that is uh, that's somewhat fortunate but um, but it is something that is rare. 
And I think it colors how we think of ourselves as a society, doesn't it? I, th- I think a lot of us would say, yeah, you nod our heads, you know, uh, America's a violent place. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I wonder if we just have about a minute left to, uh, as we come to the end of the conversation here. Um, w- w- you've studied this a long time, continue to study this. Uh, what's your top takeaway? Or what do you think our top takeaway from this should be? I think that I, I think the top takeaway is that that um, I've been doing research on the, this topic for about twenty years now, and there and there are others within my field, not not many, but there are others within my field who have also done research on this topic. But but the fact remains that that there still has not been um, much research that that has been done. On the topic of of mass murder, um, there is no single data repository for for mass killings that's collected by any government agency, and and so there there hasn't been really any funding that's been dedicated toward the topic. And so I think the top takeaway is that that while there are some things that we do know um, about mass murder, and, and the work that I've done um, has, has attempted to contribute to what we know about the history of mass killings, I think there's still a lot more that that we can learn um, about these topics. But I think that only becomes possible when there's actually some commitment made toward funding more research on this topic. We've been talking with Grant Dewey. He is director of research for the Minnesota Department of Corrections. He's author of the book Mass Murder in the United States uh, History. Grant Dewey, thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Tom. We're going to conclude our series on mass shootings in America next week with a program uh, on guns. We'll talk to people who want uh, more gun control. We'll talk to people who uh, want more gun rights. We'll have a very interesting perspective uh, later in that program on guns and identity. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.